Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after the killing of the body, has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But he who disowns me before men will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Our response is from Romans chapter 10, verses 9 to 11. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. We continue to look at Luke chapter 12 and read verses 13 to 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me or ju a judge or arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. 
eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? And this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. St. Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, beginning to read at verse 22. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. They're words of wisdom, words we would do well to take heart, living as we do in a culture which for the past 50 or 60 years has been quite in love with materialism. And the philosophy of materialism says there is no God. It's the theory or belief that nothing exists except matter and its movements and modifications. And that philosophy of life lends itself to going hand in hand with a tendency to consider material possessions and physical comfort as being more important than spiritual values. After all, to the materialist, the realm of the spiritual is far too nebulous to be taken as a basis on which to build one's life. And if we're looking for a reason for living, the materialist perhaps naturally gravitates towards being concerned with physical comforts or the acquisition of wealth and material possessions. But Jesus says, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Whenever I think about this subject, I find myself being taken back 40 years to the time when I was studying English literature for A-level. And one of our set texts was Women in Love by D.H. Lawrence. 
It's a book which, from that day to this, has had a profound effect on me. And I've referred to it more than once during my time at Brighton Road, but I hope you will excuse me if I do so again. One of the characters, Gerald, is the very embodiment of materialism in his role as owner of the local coal mines. And one day on a, on a train, his friend Birkin talks to him about his sense of his own importance and significance, how that's tied to how hard he works at the mines, since if he can produce enough coal to cook 5,000 dinners a day, that means he is 5,000 times more important than if he cooked just his own dinner. And Birkin then asks Gerald, what do you live for? Gerald's face went baffled. What do I live for? He repeated. I, I suppose I live to work, to produce something insofar as I am a purposive being. Apart from that, I live because I'm living. And what's your work? Getting so many more thousands of tonnes of coal out of the earth every day. And when we've got all the coal we want and all the plush furniture, and piano forties, and the, the rabbits all stewed and eaten, and we're all warm, and our bellies are filled, and we're listening to the young lady performing on the piano forty. What then? What then, when you've made a real fair start with your material things? And I'd never asked myself the question before, what do I live for? And I found myself thinking, actually, I don't know much more about it than Gerald does. And plot spoiler here, but the book was written in 1921, so if you haven't read it by now, you might not get around to it. Gerald dies at the end of the book, precisely because he has no adequate inner reason for living. And I found that quite scary, really, having identified with him at an early stage in the book. And it brought home to me the fact that I needed to find a valid purpose for living. And that materialism, the acquisition of things, climbing the greasy pole of success, was not going to be sufficient. And it was that which set me off on a spiritual journey which has led me so far to this place. Following as far as I can what Jesus said about seeking God's kingdom and his righteousness and finding actually that he was right when he said, it's enough, it's enough. It's provided a good motivation for living a life that by and large has been immensely fulfilling. Because contrary to what the materialist asserts, we are actually deeply spiritual beings. And nebulous and undefinable as that might be, if we neglect that aspect of our makeup, we end up being deeply impoverished on the inside. After all, what can money buy? A bed, but not sleep. A computer, but not a brain. Food, but not the appetite to enjoy it. Finery, but not beauty. A house, but not a home. Medicine, but not health. Luxuries, but not culture. Amusements, but not happiness, acquaintances, but not friends, obedience, but not faithfulness, sex, but not love. There is so much that money can't buy, and arguably one of the worst kinds of poverty is to be unloved. 
There is a Bible verse which is frequently misquoted. It was a bit of a bugbear with one of my past church secretaries. People often talk about money being the root of all evil. Someone said it to me just the other day, actually. But what 1 Timothy 6 verse 10 actually says is the love of money is the root of all evil. Money itself is just a necessary means to an end. But if money becomes an end in itself, then we find ourselves in all kinds of trouble. Paul's advice to Timothy is sound. Godliness with contentment is great gain, he says. We brought nothing into the world, we will take nothing out of it. So if we have enough to eat and clothes on our back, then let's learn to be content with that. The trouble with money is the more we focus upon it, the less it satisfies, the more we feel we need. However much money, however little money we have, it's never enough if it becomes the be-all and end-all. Jesus tells those who live on the breadline, stop worrying, stop fretting about it. God feeds the ravens, he clothes the lilies of the field, and you are so much more valuable than they are, so stop worrying. Your heavenly Father who loves you knows what you need. Sounds desperately too simple, doesn't it? If only it were that easy. Don't worry, God loves you, it's all going to be fine. Once a month I visit one of the local nursing homes and chat to the residents there, and every month I have the same conversation with a lady who, when she finds out I'm a Baptist minister, says, oh, I go to the Mormon church. I tell this story not to commend the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but because the story has a valid point. She says, I joined the Mormon church because one day uh, my husband's business had collapsed and he went out and he was looking for a way uh, to end it all. And he ran across two men who simply said to him, God loves you. And for him, she said, that was a turning point in his life. Didn't put bread on the table, but it did solve the spiritual crisis that was destroying him inside. You see, we think of poverty in terms of being physically destitute, hungry and homeless, and there are people in Horsham who've been rescued by the night shelter from being in real trouble across these winter months. But poverty is more than just a lack of material resources. It doesn't hit people first in terms of not being able to find anything to eat. The first place poverty hits people is up here, in the mind. It's the crushing sense of fear. What, what am I going to do? How am I going to be able to cope? I'm not going to be able to make ends meet. Before you start to be physically hungry, there is the thought, I'm not going to manage here. The sense of hopelessness, helplessness, powerlessness. That means the mental and emotional resources often run out way before the money does, or way before sources of money stop being found. That's why debt counselling works. The Horsham Debt Advice Service doesn't sort people out by paying their debts for them. It gives them the resources and the support they need to navigate their way out of debt. Change of heart, change of mindset, change of attitude, change of lifestyle. And for some people who find themselves trapped in a prison of fear about the future, faith in the love of God can open a door to help them find their way out of that prison and give them the emotional resources and strength they need to find a way forward. When we give in to despair, we tell ourselves it's all over, but our Heavenly Father who loves us hasn't finished with us yet. He never finishes with us, actually. Seek first his kingdom 
and his righteousness. And that advice applies to us whether we're struggling to make ends meet or whether we have more than enough and to spare, because Jesus tells the story of the rich fool who has more money than he knows what to do with, and all he can think about when he runs out of room to store his goods is pulling down his existing storehouses and building bigger ones so he can stockpile even more stuff. His assumption that he is financially secure for the rest of his life and he can eat, drink and be merry is undercut because his life is taken from him that very night. He does indeed have enough to see him to the rest of his life, but it's not quite as long as he anticipated. And at that point, everything in which he put his trust, everything which had driven his life, became useless to him. Because the value and importance of who you are can never be measured in terms of how much you have or how much you achieve. People talk about living life in one of two different ways, depending on whether you're following a cycle of grief or a cycle of grace. Each cycle has different starting points and moves in opposite directions. The cycle of grief starts with achievement. The idea that if I work hard enough, if I succeed enough, if I accumulate enough, then my achievements will justify my own importance. I'll be able to look at what I've done and say, I matter because I've done this. My achievements will be a measure of my significance. It's a dangerous philosophy to follow because it means failure would be disaster for me. It would utterly destroy me as a person because if I fail instead of achieving, that means I don't have significance. My life is only measured in terms of its value by how well I do. And if I fail, does that mean I'm worthless? So I need to achieve to be significant, and I need to keep on achieving in order to sustain my sense of significance. It all becomes a bit of a treadmill. I find it very difficult to stop, because as soon as I stop achieving, I feel like I'm starting to diminish in significance. So I have to keep on pushing this boulder up the mountain. And do I ever reach the point where I can say, I've arrived, I can stop now, I'm okay, I can accept who I am? Not really. Not really. Because at the end of the day, my spiritual need for acceptance is never going to be answered by the level of my achievement. And so we find ourselves being driven all the time. Driven by the need to achieve, the, the, the fear of failure, the need to affirm our significance, the need to keep on going, to try and find acceptance, to say, I've done all this. People talk about going to funerals and referring to two different kinds of funeral orations. One is the list of all the achievements that the person did. The other is the kind of person that they were. Far better to be remembered for who you are than for what you achieved. The other cycle, the cycle of grace, starts in a very different place. It starts with acceptance, with the knowledge, actually, I'm okay, because I'm loved. If, you, if you've had a happy child, you may know that from your parents. It's one of the most important things that any parent can communicate to their child. But all of us... Our children of God, all of us created in love by him, and our souls, your soul, the essence of who you are on the inside, was fashioned by him in love. 
you are okay because God loves you. Because God accepts you. Because God welcomes you. You don't need to be afraid of what other people think of you or how other people might judge you. You don't need to justify your existence because God called you into being. That's why you are here. That's why you are who you are. The bedrock of your identity is that you know God loves you. And nothing's going to change that. No one can take that away from you. And it's that knowledge that sustains you on a daily basis, through the tough times, through the difficulties, through the failures. Because whatever comes, whatever happens, whatever goes wrong, I am accepted. I am loved. I am treasured by the God who made me, and that is the source of my strength. And that's the key to my significance. My significance is not tied up with how well I do or how much I achieve. My significance resides in the secure knowledge that I matter because I matter to God, irrespective of how well or how badly I do. And that knowledge brings in its train the liberty to to begin to live life to the full, to push the boat out without being afraid of failure, because my security is in God, and that gives me the confidence to do far more with my life than otherwise would have been possible, to achieve, to attempt things, knowing that it's okay, because God is my security. And if my life is God's gift of love to me, my gift back to him will be to live that life and make the most of it for him. Not because I need to try and please him by doing so, but because I want to express my gratitude to him for his grace towards me. It starts with acceptance. Knowing that God accepts you as the person he's made and loves you. Paul Tillich once preached a famous sermon in which he said, Grace strikes us when we are in great pain and restlessness. It strikes us when we walk through the dark valley of a meaningless and empty life. It strikes us when we feel that our separation is deeper than usual because we have violated another life, a life which we loved or from which we were estranged. It strikes us when our disgust for our own being our indifference, our weakness, our hostility, our lack of direction and composure have become intolerable to us. It strikes us when year after year the longed-for perfection of life does not appear, when the old compulsions reign within us as they have for decades, when despair destroys all joy and courage. Sometimes, at that moment, a wave of light breaks into our darkness and it is as though a voice was saying, you are accepted. You are accepted. Accepted by that which is greater than you and the name of which you do not know. Don't ask for the name now, perhaps you will find it later. Don't try to do anything now, perhaps later you will do much. Don't seek for anything. Don't perform anything. Don't intend anything. Simply accept the fact that you are accepted. And if that happens to us, we experience grace. Starts with grace. Starts with the knowledge of God's unconditional love towards you. His acceptance of you.
your security of him, in him. In our materialistic culture, it is all too easy for us to be driven by the cycle of grief. But the cycle of grace, that starts with acceptance. That gives us strength for daily living. That gives us the assurance of our own significance. That provides the basis for everything that we do. And if you realise, perhaps for the very first time, that you've been pursuing a cycle of grief rather than a cycle of grace, then it's time to stop. To take stock. To turn round and to start to head back in the other direction. That's what repentance is. Which way round have you been running your life? If it's been going the wrong way round, stop. Change direction. Start to follow the cycle of grace. That's what Jesus calls us to do. Will you turn round and start to head the other way?